Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Discover Strength Podcast. I'm your host, Logan Emmett Hurley. I'm an ACSM and HIT Uni certified personal trainer with Discover Strength. Let's face it, busy people don't have time to waste on exercise that doesn't work. The Discover Strength Podcast focuses on bringing on the best minds in the field of evidence-based exercise, so you can look and feel your best in a fraction of the time. Thank you for joining us, and please enjoy this week's episode of the Discover Strength Podcast. Dr. James Fisher is a senior lecturer and researcher at Solent University in the UK. He has extensive experience with elite athletes, including coaching at the London 2012 Olympic Games. He also has published a comprehensive range of peer-reviewed research publications with both clinical, asymptomatic, and elite populations. Dr. Fisher has authored several funding bids and is an editor-reviewer for numerous high-impact journals. He has been a keynote speaker at an array of academic and industry conferences, most notably a repeat keynote presenter at the Resistance Exercise Conference for eight straight years. He is on the board of directors for the Strength and Conditioning Society and has been a featured expert on television programs, podcasts, and webinars discussing his own research and other similar themes. At present, his ambitions surround the progression and delivery of theoretical and practical knowledge for health, fitness, and sporting success, as well as enjoying time with his son and trying to keep up with his wife on a bike. Everyone, please enjoy this week's episode of the Discover Strength Podcast with Dr. James Fisher. I just want to say thank you to everyone for joining us today on the Discover Strength Podcast. I'm joined here by one of my favorite clinical researchers in the field, Dr. James Fisher from, I always say this wrong, Solent? That's correct, yep. Solent University out in the UK. Um, James is one of the first guys I read a lot of his papers when I started at Discover Strength. He's just one of the preeminent researchers, in my opinion, in the field. Um, And he just has been a friend of Discover Strength for a long time. He's this year going to be speaking at his ninth, ninth consecutive. Well, uh, it might be eighth. It's eighth or ninth, something like that. Eighth or ninth consecutive resistance exercise conference. So it's basically just a... James Fisher and friends every time we do that. Um, James, why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about yourself? Thanks again for joining, man. Yeah, well, thank you for the introduction and, and thank you for inviting me on the podcast. I am indeed a friend of Discover Strength and that's really a product of of the um, the quality of what Discover Strength do. So kudos to you as a trainer and Discover Strength as an organization. Um yeah, so my background really is is strength training for sports performance. Uh, as you know, um, or as you might have seen, I, I used to be a little bit of a basketball player, and that, that first let me down um, a bit of strength training path. And I, I think I probably followed the, the the typical kind of high volume or what certainly was a higher volume than I'm doing now approach. Um, and, I, and I was really passionate about it. I was really driven by it. I really enjoyed coaching, um, and I pursued my degree in exercise science. Um, and it was a natural progression for me to just continue studying there. During my undergrad, I was already looking at PhD opportunities. Um, and when they just didn't transpire, I, I went through the, the process of a master's uh, in exercise physiology and then really just wanted to start publishing. Um, 
and published first papers you know about 10 years ago now and then um did my phd along the process as well and and that's led me to where i am as a senior lecturer and you know worked with a number of athletes and a number of trainers along the way i ran my own training business um along the way um you have and, your own yeah, training just, business yeah i run my own personal training business for a little while i didn't while. know that that's awesome yeah so, yeah, so it was uh, it was it, it wasn't strictly hit per se. It was a very low volume, high effort approach um, that would fall absolutely into the hit category. Um, and really the emphasis was on, um, there was no, every workout was between about 40 minutes and an hour, but there's no timescale set. And uh, yeah, everybody just got absolutely beasted. And in, in a very similar way to Discover Strength, I ran an initial kind of free workout and at that point, I would sit down with the client afterwards and say, and we would talk about the future. And one of the great things that I ever did was some clients, I turned around and said, look, you haven't, you haven't got the right mindset for this kind of training. It's not going to work. I think it would be a waste of my time to work with you. I think you would get frustrated at the low volume approach. You clearly just want to spend two hours in the gym going through the motions. Um, so go away, have a think about it. And then if you reevaluate that, come back. And um it was a great, it was a great thing for me because you kind of make yourself quite exclusive. Yeah. Um, people are suddenly like, hold on, I, I'm going to pay you money and you don't want <laughs> the money. Yeah. And, I, and I could only take on so many clients. Um, so it was, it was a great thing to be able to do that. And I, and I would get people come back to me sort of six weeks later and they'd be like, I, I get it now. I get what you're yeah. doing. I've been being trained by, you know, Joe over there and, and now, now I, and I've seen you train your clients and now I get that it's about effort. It's about how hard you work. And so, like, so give me the timeline on this from, from basketball to uh, your PhD and doing the research that you do now with the training. When did you kind of make that switch to a high intensity approach? Yeah. So during my undergrad, I started my undergrad and I was probably still more of a high volume guy, although there was a natural progression for that to, to change um, just purely because the amount of studying I was doing for my, for my you know, uh, my degree. Um, and as you can imagine, I was really engrossed in what I was doing. I wanted to spend more time in the labs. I wanted to spend more time with my tutors and more time reading in the library. Um, because back then we studied in a library. I, my students <laughs> now, that's so alien to them. Everything yeah. is online. You're not so. that much older than I am. So I remember that as well. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and then I had a great lecturer called uh, Dr. Dave Smith, and and uh, yeah, I know I know of Dave. Yeah, and he uh, he was just a, a really truly inspirational guy, and uh, I still work with him to this day. And he knows how big an impact he had on my own training and on my own acad academic career and research. And I um, we were talking one day about training, and he said, "Oh, you should check out this book in the library. It's uh, you know." Uh, the lumbar extension, the cervical extension, and the knee okay. by this guy, Dr. Arthur Jones. And I was like, okay. And I went and read it. And I think I took it out of the library and read it that night and went back to him the next day and knocked on his door and said, what, what else should I read? What else? Yeah. And, and, awesome. uh, and uh, the next thing he said was the new high intensity training by L. Darden. Yeah. And if there's ever a book that's going to get you hooked on it, yeah. <laughs> you fluctuate between reading a page and wanting to just go and lift weights. You need to go and lift. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, no. I, I just was, was so taken in. And, and at that point I just, you know, then all my studies almost kind of took a back seat while I read everything I could on high intensity training, Darden and Mensa and Jones and, 
So, so let me ask, we kind of use you as, as one of the biggest resources in our community, at least for somebody who's doing what we would call the right types of, of scientific research under this field of evidence base, right? You're not doing super high volume stuff with your clients. Typically, was there a time in your academic career when, before that shift happened, um, when you were doing research papers where maybe you just didn't feel confident enough to take a, a, a lower volume approach or there just wasn't that uh, history there. So you felt maybe you had to to go with, I guess, the, the way the wind was blowing. You know, I, I found it. Uh, the short answer is not at all. I always okay. felt completely committed to the low volume approach um, from day one. I, and I was almost frustrated because as I learned more about what really is a logical way to train. You know, it's not just a scientific way to train, it's a logical approach. Mm. Um, everything, you know, by, by the names that I've said and, and more, I, I, I kind of found it really frustrating that there wasn't any peer-reviewed research or there's very little peer-reviewed research looking at this, this kind of training, this low volume approach. Um, and I felt like I almost felt compelled to kind of start to flood the, the scientific literature with this, uh, you know, this low volume approach to resistance training and, and more, in my mind, more evidence-based approach. Um, along the path, I've been frustrated by the fact that I, you know, I, I mean, some of the peer reviews that I get, the peer review process is the uh, an article when it's submitted for publication gets sent to relative experts in the field um, to read and review and kind of agree with maybe the methodology or the statistical analyses and maybe the concepts and, and even the importance of the application. And some of that my must be an interesting like, process, yeah, within that field for sure. Yeah, and some of the earliest reviews I got were this doesn't make any sense, people can't get stronger by doing one set <laughs> per week. And I'm like, even though that in the same paper I'm presenting the data, they just seemed to argue this back, and editors seemed to go, Okay, yeah, so we'll reject the paper. And I was like tearing my hair out. Yeah. To the extent where some of the research I've done has taken a higher volume approach just because it's less important for that specific study. Mm. And in the longer run, it will make it easier to get published. You don't have to deal with uh, people pushing back against you. Yeah, that's yeah. an interesting uh, concept on that side to think like, well, maybe we'll do a couple extra sets just so these people won't push back against it. That's, right. that's definitely got to be frustrating. Well, well, that's great. I, I appreciate all that. Tell us about um, what your topic is this year at REC. Because, man, you got to be running out of ideas after, you know, almost a dozen of these coming up. You know, every year I think, uh, wow, what am I going to do next year? And then it's normally like a matter of 24 hours before I've got like three or four ideas. I'm like, oh, man, I really want to get into this. I really want to talk about this. I'm pretty sure that was your opening statement for your speech, Liza. I don't know what I'm going to do next year. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I probably had it figured out by the end of the awards, you know, yeah. last year. Yeah. Um, yeah, so this year I'm going to talk about um, a concurrent training, which is the combination of strength and endurance training into a single program. Perfect. Um, and it's really, uh, it's a really interesting topic because there's there's a, a construct called the interference effect, and it's basically this idea that if you do one kind of training, it will negatively impact your adaptations to the to the other kind. So if you do, for example, the um, accepted wisdom, the current dogma is that if you do, if you go running or you do loads of cardio, that will hinder your strength and your muscle hypertrophy gains. 
and vice versa. If you do loads of strength training, loads of cardio, loads of weights, then it might hinder your cardiovascular performance. Now, that way is not such a big deal, and it's mostly proven against it. But that, and that's part of what I'm going to talk about in the conference presentation. But it's a really passionate topic of mine because I'm actually a cyclist as well. Okay. So for half the year, you know, when the weather's good, I'm I'm an endurance athlete. Yeah. Um, so it's it's a lot of it for me is about how I manage that that kind of motivation with my you know health health goals of now you you were saying the evidence doesn't really support it is that in both directions like your your running won't interfere with or your cardio won't interfere with your weights or were you saying your weights specifically won't interfere with your cardio how does the so, so your weights typically won't interfere with your cardio okay that's what um, i was thinking yeah uh, and in fact can enhance it quite significantly through uh, yeah. through a couple of potential mechanisms um but again i'm going to look at that whole body of research and kind of talk about well what what are we actually enhancing and um, but yeah there's been kind of an accepted uh, approach that if you are a weights guy if you're trying to get bigger and stronger you don't want to do cardio because it's gonna you know hinder your strength or hypertrophy gains and yeah it's not quite as simple as that yeah for sure no that's that's definitely something i want to uh, touch on when we get to the actual uh, topic today but i think that would actually be just an amazing separate discussion to have at some point especially after you do your presentation i'd love to maybe um go through that a little bit more with you in a in a future episode because i think a lot of the people that are drawn to discover strength tend to have this dogmatic approach not everyone um but a lot of people we have a lot of type a people that come to us right so they want to run in the morning you know do five to 12 miles and then they want to hit their you know their their weights five times a day or five times a week when they come to us initially and a lot of it is kind of pumping the brakes on stuff but that cardio aspect specifically i mean at least the research i've seen your weight training is going to improve your efficacy at whatever cardiovascular exercise you enjoy but man can it really be a negative response the other direction like we have people that will bike 50 miles and then wonder why their leg press hasn't improved that day that same day right so yeah <laughs> um okay well i i just kind of want to give you an overview of, of what we're trying to accomplish here and then then we'll kind of dive into to the bigger picture for today so this is the DS podcast, Discover Strength podcast. What we're really trying to do is just target people who are looking for the most efficient evidence-based approach to exercise. Now, these are busy people. They've got busy lives. They don't have a lot of time to waste per se on strength training. Now, that doesn't mean that they haven't done it in the past. And maybe they come to us and they're already currently training two hours a day, five days a week, but they find that they're just burning the candle at both ends. So today's topic specifically, I think is going to be really important for those people that have maybe never heard of Discover Strength before, maybe have never heard of high intensity training to just kind of dispel some of these really common ideas that a lot of us have when we first read something like Arthur Jones' cervical spine. Fine, right? When we first get introduced to these Nautilus principles or some of these other kind of foundational beliefs within the industry that I've seen that the research really backs up is, wait, I don't have to do that? But that's what everyone told me. Why have I been wasting my time, right? right. Um, so the kind of overarching theme today is going to be, in my opinion, and, and I want you to add any myths that you feel like I maybe left out, are kind of the five biggest 
uh, exercise myths that evidence just really doesn't support. And who better to have somebody discuss the evidence with us than, again, in my opinion, one of the most prolific researchers in the field of, of resistance training. And I'm going to stop blowing smoke up your butt. Um, so, so here's what we've got today. We've got high reps, low reps. Uh, we're going to talk about single versus multiple sets. Uh, this one kind of goes a little bit into what you were just discussing there, cardio for weight loss and then weight training for building muscle. The idea of having to train fast to be fast and then just training frequency in general, right? So this idea of overtraining, having to train, you know, three, four, five, six, seven days a week, one to two hours a day. Um, so I'll, I just kind of want you to to start maybe from the top there and um, I'll, I'll actually give you kind of a lead in here, right? So all the time, high reps, low reps, I get people who come into the door to discover strength and they wonder how is it possible to just do one set? Um, you know, I see skinnier ballet figurine type women in the gym that are doing really light weights and they're doing a hundred reps of everything. And then I see the big bulky guys and they're lifting the hundred pound dumbbells and they're doing three or five reps do I have to do one or the other? Like, how is it possible to just be somewhere in between? So I'll, I'll let you kind of take it away from there is what, what the research actually says. You know, well, first of all, as you went through those myths, it amazes me that this kind of perception still exists in the mainstream media. But again, it's, it's, um, it's almost indicative of how these cycles go round and round and round and how removed people are from, from, from real useful information and and hence the importance of podcasts like this and, and the training that you guys do the high rep low rep i mean it's easy to look at, at guys that are big and strong and look at them lifting heavy weights for fewer reps uh, and even look at the strong men on tv and see that uh, and then look at the you know ballet dancer or or gymnast and look at them doing a high number of low load reps well the reality is that strength adaptations can occur at both high at both high and both heavier and lighter loads or high or, or low reps high and low reps i should say but the reality is it's the amount of effort that's being put in so now we could you could argue that the that the time under load for somebody doing a hundred reps with a very light weight is a lot greater than somebody doing a heavy weight for a few reps and therefore with that in mind the calorie expenditure is higher and that might that might lend itself arguably to kind of the toning slimming down approach but i would also say that most of the time is being wasted because the effort is very low the movement is high but the effort is low you know it's it's no different from doing more typical cardio which we'll get onto as one of the other myths yeah. and i think not. that you you hit on a, a important point there that i try to emphasize with clients as well is this idea of especially if you're doing multiple high rep sets you know, typically the cadence that people are moving at is pretty quick. Um, so one of the things I'll talk to people about for those of our listeners that don't know what time under load is, it's the actual time that you're under tension, right? During the course of the repetition. So if you're doing 10 reps at a one, one cadence up down, that's 20 seconds for that set, right? right. Or, and then you're doing, you know, five sets of that. So a hundred seconds of time under load or, you can slow those reps down and get that same time under low, that same hundred seconds of actual tension in one set, taking it close to or, or, or past momentary muscular failure. So I just wanted to um, 
make that point. No, it's, it's great clarity. It's really good, really good point. And I think one of the key things is there's some degree of confirmation bias in, in this because we see somebody in the gym and I still know guys that know they're intelligent people. They've read the research, they understand it. They might even have, you know, master's degrees in, in physiology or such, but they see a big guy in the gym doing a certain <laughs> exercise. And if you watch them the next workout, they'll start doing that exercise. Yeah. Because in their head, there's a natural link between this guy was big and muscular and he was doing that exercise. So that exercise equals that. And it's not the case. We, we know that's not the case. And the reality is this is the time spent in the gym is a really small proportion of, of our life or, or should be a really small proportion of our life. Um, so it's, it's the other things they're doing. If it's a really big guy, it might be steroids or their other nutrition or their sleep patterns. And if it's a really slim male or female, then it might be the other exercise they do or their other dietary habits or sleep patterns or stresses and so forth. And we don't see the big picture. Um, but the reality is the evidence just simply supports the heavier and lighter loads within, within, a, re- within a reasonable margin uh, show. Can you give us a kind of margin from from the research if we're talking about one rep max which again you and I might not necessarily think is the best measure but a lot of people who are starting off will use a one rep max as kind of their percentage guidelines so what are we talking yeah. guideline wise so there was a nice paper a couple of years back I think it was that looked at different loads ranging from 80 percent down to 20 percent and and everything from 80 to 40 percent showed virtually identical adaptations, very, very similar adaptations with no real trend for heavier loads being better than lighter loads. But the group that trained at 20% of 1RM had lesser adaptations, so lower strength and lower hypertrophy adaptations. Now, one of my areas of research in all this has been around discomfort and perceptual responses to exercise. I was going to see if we were going to get into that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And one of the big things that I say is that when you when you exercise for a prolonged period, getting to the point of muscular failure is really, really tough. Yeah. You know, if you ask, I mean, put bluntly, if you ask anybody if they'd rather do, a, you know, a heavy leg press that's going to be two or three reps of, of maximal and near maximal effort – or they'd rather do uh, a really light leg press, but keep going until they can't do any more, which means they're going to be in the tension for, well, a, a participant in one of my studies did knee extensions for 12 minutes. Oh, God. Until he until he finally reached failure. And the guy is running with sweat. He's bright oh. in the face. He's screaming out in pain. But we stood over him and drilled him to muscular failure. And it's only really because we know him because he's a staff member and because he's a rugby player that we knew how hard he'd work. Yeah. But nobody wants to do that. Nobody wants to put themselves through that. And it's not efficient to do that either. Yeah. Let's be, you know, if you can get the adaptations with a heavier load. So for, for me, the recommendation is a, a moderate load, somewhere between six and 12 reps, a uh, controlled rep duration that normally equals somewhere between 60 and 90 seconds is, is pretty good. You go much below 60 seconds, maybe you're selling yourself short. Once you go over 90 seconds, I start to think, are you really reaching failure gotcha. um, you know so i, I or think is it more of a discomfort thing at that point yeah, yeah. absolutely and, and there's a pretty good body of evidence to support all of that so 
Gotcha. Well, that's that's great. I think that kind of puts that one to bed. Let's talk a little bit about this idea of single versus multiple sets. And, um, you know, you touched on a lot of that stuff, right, when we're getting to failure, regardless of the weight. But there's, again, this kind of stigma within the industry that one set simply isn't enough. Now, now we touched on this a little bit, too. If if the actual speed of the repetitions is so fast that what we know and what the research bears out is that you're just actually looking for this kind of sweet spot in the time under tension. Well, yeah, if you're moving really quick, maybe you do need to do multiple sets. Um, but I know when I first started weightlifting, there was this idea of three sets of 10, you know, it was kind of the overarching principle and you laugh because you probably heard it too. And that's probably something you did. And I didn't even know what the weight range should be, right? It's whether I was doing really light, it's three sets of 10. If I'm doing heavy, I'm going to try to kill myself getting three sets of 10. Um, what does the research kind of say about that single versus multiple? Yeah. Well, the first reason I laugh is because I, I know the origin of the three sets of 10. So there's a guy, Dr. Uh, Captain Thomas DeLorme from the military. And in the 1940s, he published some, some studies on, on, on uh, rehabilitating um, injured war veterans. And he, I think I, is, this was in your, your uh, meta-analyses, right? Where you kind of looked it, it over was in my, it. Was in, well, it may have been in some of the papers, but it was certainly in, uh, in, in a presentation from last was year. Was this an opinion paper too? I, I heard you discussing this with Lawrence maybe at some point. Yeah, so, so he developed what's called the strength endurance continuum, which, which suggests that heavy weights and higher loads are better for strength, whereas lighter weights and more reps are better for endurance. But in fact, what he was referring to is simply the contrast between weightlifting for strength and cardio for endurance. He was never actually comparing light resistance training. Gotcha. Um, so that's where he's been misunderstood. But one of his um, one of his earlier studies talked about the idea that a, a person should do three sets of 10 repetitions. But when you read down to it, it encourages that the first set is a warm up set at, I think, 50 percent of the 10 rep max. The second set is a is a secondary warm up set, uh, about seventy five percent of the ten rep max, and the final set is a maximal set, a single set of ten rep max load for ten repetitions. So basically, a single set to failure, with two warm up reps, with two warm up sets. Excuse me. Yeah. And when you see it put like that, it kind of makes sense that somebody with an injury might want to check the range of motion of their joint and kind of build into the exercise rather than just sit down and go, you know, all out for a single set. In fact, he actually changed it in a paper about two years later to just a single set. Really? But, but somehow that origin of three sets of 10 stuck around and just became the gospel in weight training, right? <laughs> I mean, everybody knows it more than they know what exercises they should do or what weight they should lift. It's three sets of 10. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's like you said, it's comical. You see guys that have been going to the gym for years and they've never changed the weight from the first day they went in there. They still just do the three sets of 10 and they're <laughs> way stronger than they were, but three sets of 10. Yeah. Just gotta, just gotta do what you gotta do. Yeah. No, that's interesting. And it, it seems like a lot of this stuff um, becomes 
kind of part of lore, right? Like we don't know necessarily how we pick it up. And that's so common in, in cross-culturally. I mean, whether it's in the US, there's things that we still say, can't think of any good examples right now that, you know, somebody said once 50, 60 years ago and somebody else picked it up and we've just been running with it ever since. And no, that's interesting to know the actual the actual origins. And in that context, you know, it might make sense, right? If you are injured, like you said, seeing how the joint feels, um, you know, making sure that the range of motion actually works for you. Um, so as far as you've seen in the research, though, that one, that single set is going to give you all the benefits that you're looking for, essentially. Well, you, well, so it's a really difficult area because, first of all, you have to look at the quality of the single set. And you and I both know that there, there is disparity in the quality, mm -hmm. especially when you compare a typical a typical three set to ten guy. I'm not going to say a high volume guy because I don't think that is particularly high volume, but um, a typical three sets of 10 guy certainly doesn't have the same mental focus or um, control of the rep of each repetition um, and certainly doesn't have the same intensity of effort that somebody doing a single set does. So, so first of all, the research is very difficult to compare. Um, what 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 the evidence what the evidence tends to show now is that yes a single set will get you probably most of the gains that multiple sets will get you and it, as far as strength goes probably a, a, a non-discernible difference so it, to, to make to make the idea of multiple sets completely redundant when it comes to increasing muscle mass and muscle hypertrophy there's still a bit of evidence that supports multiple sets um, and again, that might be because of the quality of the research um, and whether it's really looked at controlled repetitions or truly looked at the high intensity of effort. Um, there could be an argument for multiple sets in so much as inducing greater metabolic uh, stress within the muscle. So the metabolites that, that um, are a byproduct of muscular contraction and energy release um, could be catalysts for for increasing muscle size. So essentially more damage, more stimulus. Now, would would you say that, would that be, if, if your goal is not simply hypertrophy, would this be a good approach for someone who maybe, and this is something I've experimented as a practitioner with before, is doing multiple sets with someone who maybe can't push themselves as far. So the idea of failure um, is just so foreign to them, kind of accumulating more byproducts of fatigue through a multiple set approach. Yeah, well, the, the interesting thing is I don't, I still don't know that a multiple set approach is better because one of the key things that's arisen more recently is the discussion of um, multiple sets per muscle group, not necessarily multiple sets of an exercise. So early studies took a very scientific lab-based approach. Let's take a knee extension and compare one set to three sets of a knee extension. And some studies reported greater growth of the quadriceps for the three-set group. But then the problem is that that's not a typical resistance training protocol. Hmm. So if you were to say, should you do one set of lower body exercise or multiple sets of lower body exercise, I would say, well, you should probably do multiple sets, but that doesn't mean you have to do three sets of each exercise. Of each exercise, yeah. You might do a knee extension and a leg press and a lunge or a abductor, adductor, leg curl, calf press. You know, you would have more stimulus for the, for the different muscle groups. Gotcha. And the more recent evidence suggests that um, a muscle group or a muscle is optimized with stimulation of around nine to 10 sets per week. Well, 
to me, that that's actually more reflective of a high intensity approach to training. Um, in most workouts that are 10 to 12 exercises, a muscle group probably gets stimulated in three to four exercises. Mm. Um, and therefore, doing that twice a week, you, you hit your, eight, you hit your eight, eight sets. Well, you know, you're, you're pretty close. What are you going to get? The difference between eight sets and nine or 10 sets is, is really quite negligible. So now right. we come down to the reality of a single set approach using uh, a holistic um, resistance training workout might get you, uh, well, arbitrarily 99.9% of your potential adaptations. Gotcha. And and what you're saying here, essentially, James, is doing multiple different movements for the lower body, in this case, talking about the legs, and those are accumulating to those total sets, right? So um, doing a leg press is going to hit essentially everything below your hips. So you've got your adductors, abductors, all that is included in there. Then we do a single set of adduction, right? Single joint working that direction. Now you're getting your adductors again. That's two, right? So we're accumulating that way just to, to Right. provide a little clarity there. No, that's, that's yeah. great. Let's, uh, let's put that one to bed. I think that was great. Um, let's talk about your, uh, your little pet, uh, pet fun thing to do on the side here, Mr. Biker, uh, cardio for weight loss versus, uh, weights for muscle gain. Um, so the idea, and again, this is something I'm really guilty of early in my training career is warm up 15 to 30 minutes on the treadmill or the elliptical, do your weights, maybe a cool down after, and the whole thinking and the the mental process there, which I get again a lot as a practitioner, people coming in, what do I do about my cardio? How am I going to lose weight? And now I know it's basically just getting to a caloric deficit and strength train hard. But what does the research say about those two things as far as um, those categories go? Well, Logan, first of all, you might have to stop me on this one, because I feel like I might kind of just, you know, really kind of take over with this. This, okay. is, an area, this is an area that you could really talk about for hours. There's no question. Yeah. In If I put this in context, most people do cardio for weight loss because of two reasons. One is prolonged exercise. So there's a perception that they're burning more calories because they're exercising for longer. And if we consider solely the calories burnt during exercise, that might be true. That might be true. Um, but when somebody goes for a run and then stops, their caloric, uh, their calorific expenditure drops almost back down to baseline very, very quickly. There's very little what's called afterburn or um, excess energy expenditure uh, beyond the exercise. Yeah. Whereas in resistance training, the calories um, – uh, utilized during the exercise are probably relatively similar, but there's also a metabolic effect where the, the body continues to burn calories at a relatively high rate for a prolonged period, um, you know, up to 48 hours post-exercise. And that's and, 7 to 12%, 7 to 11%, something in that ballpark? Something around that. There's a few different numbers thrown around by different researchers, yeah. But so we, so we know straight away that, it, from people look at it from a calorie point of view and it's very black and white. They think if I go for a run for an hour, that's more calories than if I lift weights for 30 minutes, but total and from a total perspective, it's not. The other thing that people look at is they say, well, there's a magical fat burning zone, mm. right? If I exercise below a certain threshold, I'm in the fat burning zone. And that's because their body is working aerobically. If you're working aerobically, which is basically 
a rate where you can uh, probably, if you're going for a run, you can probably still maintain a bit of a conversation. Your energy is being produced by with, with the use of oxygen. That's what aerobic exercise means. And if you're producing energy with oxygen, then you're burning predominantly fat as your energy substrate. So people therefore think, well, I'm burning fat during while I exercise, and that's what I want to get rid of, so on and so forth. Okay. And that's, again, numerically, that's that's true. But the, the, the negative side of that is that doing cardio probably, or doing cardio in that way, probably does very little to increase muscle mass. Um, and muscle mass it is the best marker for kind of our health and our well-being that you can take. Uh, people with people with better muscles, with bigger muscles, with stronger muscles, with more efficient muscles will live longer and will have a better quality of life along the way. Um, there's no there's no question around that. There's a, a massive amount of research around that. So it's uh, almost the the investment, your ROI is going to be a lot higher if your resistance training is kind of what I'm hearing here, right? The the metabolic bang for your buck is going to be on doing bicep curls over doing a power walk, right? With the unquestionably. Yeah. Unquestionably. Yeah. yeah. And then the flip side of this is people look at cardio for weight loss. So if they're really tuned into their weight loss. The other thing that they probably do is they probably cut their calories. So they probably drop into a calorie deficit. At best, if they want to lose weight, they drop into a calorie deficit. But the big problem now is higher volumes of cardio and a calorie deficit means you're going to lose weight. And about 50% of that weight is going to be muscle. And that is tragic. That's absolutely got to be avoided because as we age, we're going to lose muscle anyway. Um, it's, it's, it's going to happen. There's nothing we can do, but we want to hang on to every last bit of it that we can. Now, the, the flip side of that is people that weight train often think about building muscle, so they often think about adding more protein into their diet. So the reality is that people that weight train and add protein in, but maybe still have a calorie deficit, now, some, statistically, something like 98%, almost all of their weight loss is fat. And that's the difference. If people think rationally about what they're doing it's not about weight loss it's about fat fat loss loss, yeah and and i just really want to drive home that point james because i think that's so important especially for the type of people that we tend to get at discover strength we see this vicious cycle that happens and and you really hit the nail on the head right we get older so we're going through sarcopenia this is men and women so we're losing muscle anyways right so what do we do we talk to our doctor and they tell us that we need to go on a walking program right so we go on a walking program to try to lose weight on top of that we're doing a caloric deficit but we don't strength train because we don't think it's important because we just want to lose fat Well, now you're decreasing your metabolic rate. You're decreasing your calories that you're taking in. It's just this vicious feeds in. And then we get these people that come in and they've just lost all this muscle and they're frail and they're fragile. And then they start strength training. And all of a sudden it's like, man, they get their vitality back. Um, and, and it's just so cool to see. And I think such an important point to really drive home that so many of us, cause again, as you're describing the cardio for weight loss piece, it makes sense, right? Intuitively. And I think that's the issue with a lot of these myths is they make sense intuitively until you dive a little bit deeper into them and right. you really see where the end of the rabbit hole leads. And it's usually not where you wanted to go to begin with. 
So yeah. Well, the, the other thing that we've got to remember, and this is really important for any clients, any practitioners, and even really any industry professionals, is everything we're doing in exercise is stimulating a hormonal response. And some of it is is really going to override or is going to fight against what we're trying to achieve. So if you go out and you do cardiovascular exercise in the form of cycling or running, and it's what I would say is long duration, moderate intensity, then you raise your stress hormones. Um, you also get a decrease in the hormone leptin and an increase in the hormone ghrelin. And that basically tells your body, you've burned calories, you should replace those calories, eat, eat, eat. And it also tells your body to store the calories you've just consumed. Now, if you then remember that we our metabolism isn't boosted. So we go and do, a, I don't know, a 500 calorie run, which is probably a pretty good run. Um, and then we get home and our body is saying replenish it. So it's fighting against our desires. Yeah. Whereas the reality is that short, more intense exercise, and that might even be sprinting or interval training, or but prim- primarily weights is, is my focus. It, it has the same effect. It raises our stress hormones, but it also raises our growth hormones. Hmm. And the impact on leptin and ghrelin is, they, is that they both go down. So we don't have the same hunger response. We don't have the same hormonal hunger response. So we don't feel the same inclination to eat. And I don't know about you, but certainly if I put this in context, when I've been a swimmer, as soon as I get out of the pool, I want to eat. Like I just, I'm starving. And I've never felt that immediately after lifting weights. You know, if anything, the idea of food is just. (laughs) Yeah, I finished lifting weights and somebody hands me a protein shake or I I open up a protein bar and I'm amazed at how long it takes me to drink it or to drink or eat it. Yeah. I'm still looking at it 20 minutes later and I'm like, oh my God, it's a bar. It's this big, you know. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And and, and maybe. Our body doesn't want to do that. So that hormonal response is really important. We can't fight that. But yeah. the ex- but we can choose the exercise type we do. And even being aware that it's going to happen might be a big thing. So, Yeah, no, I, I think that's great. And I, I mean, you see this played out in so many different aspects, especially socially, like whether you look at The Biggest Loser or any of these other weight loss shows, where why do people put it back on? It's so unsustainable after a long time um, to try to keep up this caloric deficit with this cardiovascular exercise, when all you're doing is increasing your, your appetite um, and not doing anything to suppress it or give yourself more metabolic tissue to actually burn calories more efficiently. No, I, I, I think that was great, man. Really, really awesome. Well, hopefully we can squeeze in these last couple here. Um, let's talk about uh, training fast to be fast, right? So this idea, again, another one that to me on its base makes perfect sense, right? If you want to be explosive, say you're an American football player, you want to tackle harder, well, shouldn't you train fast in order to do that? Why, why does that not um, become backed up by the literature? You know, this is a this is really interesting because you get a group of people that argue train fast, and then they also argue add resistance to exercises. Yeah. So they also they're the same people that say that you should swing a heavier baseball bat, or shoot a heavier basketball, or do resisted sprinting. And I and I, and I, and I and you I say that yeah. like we shouldn't do those things. Is that well, what we you're getting at? <laughs> we absolutely shouldn't do those things. Apart from the increased risk of injury, we're changing our motor patterns. 
So there are some really nice studies that have shown if you practice with a heavier baseball bat, what does it do to your baseball swing? It makes your baseball swing of a typical bat, of a traditional bat, slower because you've practiced swinging the bat slower. Now, the flip side of that, you could argue, is that if you move faster, then you would practice moving faster. But the same doesn't apply to resistance training. It might apply to, to swinging a bat, but you're still not training the exact system you want to use for the sport. When it comes to resistance training, what you're trying to do is you're trying to put the muscle under tension. You're trying to stimulate strength and hypertrophic adaptations. Rate of force development, which is how fast you can contract a muscle or how fast you could, the initial phase of contraction, is seldom the defining factor in any sport that I've ever seen. Um, I, you know, your ability to get off the line as a lineman or as a running back or as a, a receiver is not determined by how fast you've been lifting weights. It's about the motor control in your mechanics of that first step and your reaction to the ball being snapped. So going in the gym and doing a leg press explosively doesn't in any way help that and probably hinders it more than anything. Now, I think this is an important point. I want you to keep going here. But I think the big overarching theme in this, and it's unfortunate, but it's true, is it really just comes down to genetics, what you're capable of. A lot of the time with explosiveness, with balance, with all these things that we want so badly to improve, but you look at the guys who have that next level ability and there's no, you know, as they say, there's no coaching that, right? Yeah. So you've got to remember, we've reached a point now where learning from elite athletes is is easily done, but also one of the dumbest things we can do because these <laughs> guys are just on a gen different genetic playing field to us. They, they really are. Um, and of course, there's a spectrum of that. You know, to, to some people, you and I are the genetic studs of the planet. You know, it's, I'd like to think so. Yeah. Yeah. I'd like to think <laughs> so too. <laughs> you know, and other people will not will not physiologically achieve what what we might and so forth and so looking at LeBron James or or whoever it might be as our kind of idol and saying I want shoulders that broad I want a vertical jump that high you know I want abs like that whatever it might be is is redundant because what we'll end up doing is doing what they're doing but the reality is they probably have exactly that physique and exactly that build and the, that skill set without doing what they're doing yeah the, the the sad reality is in some cases what they're doing is probably hindering what they could accomplish more than helping it and at best resistance training in sports prevents injury rather than enhances performance um, and i think that's a, that's really been lost in the whole strength and conditioning realm yeah. now, now going back to the idea of lifting weights fast for yeah. movement for fast movement well, if there were anything in that, at best, we could say it's intent. It's intent to move the weight fast. Okay. Now, that's to put that in context, if I give you the heaviest weight you can lift for a single repetition, so you're one rep max, you're going to lift it as fast as you can. You're not going to move deliberately slow. And arguably, at the point of muscular failure, you're still moving. You're still trying to contract the muscle with as much force and, and, and with that in mind, as high a velocity as you can. The weight isn't moving fast, yeah. but the intent is there. And I think that once we kind of get that clarity, we can see that we don't need to move the weight fast. 
we just need to reach failure and have the intent to move it fast. To move and, fast. And we're still achieving the same thing. Yeah, and I think any of our, our listeners who are clients or who have trained in this style before know that idea when they're getting to those last few repetitions, when your trainer or yourself personally is just trying to push on to that idea of, all right, this time off the bottom, we're going to start slow, but then we're going as fast as we can. And guess what happens? Nada, right? So <laughs> once we get to that point, but it doesn't mean that you're not literally trying to move that weight as fast as you can. Um, yeah. So I think that's a, a great Great clarification there. All right, last one, James. Let's talk about frequency, right? So when we start out uh, as any potential future NBA players or bodybuilders as we might be, uh, there's this idea that we just have to train all the time, right? And this probably kind of goes into your concurrent training idea and maybe the overtraining aspect. But I know when I first started working out a lot, I would go five days a week. I mean, maybe six days a week. The idea of a rest day was going to the gym and just doing the elliptical for an hour, as opposed to doing that and lifting weights. Now we see, and I think this kind of goes into the last point, these people that are genetically just next level who are basically saying, keep up with me on social media and, uh, you know, all these different things. If you're not training as hard as Floyd Mayweather, you just are, you might as well stop. Right. Well, it's right. like, that's all he does. He doesn't have a real job. He just trains all day. So how does that, um, that mindset kind of affect people? What does the literature say about it as far as training frequency and what's actually necessary to get results? Yeah. Well, first of all, it's a really interesting example to use Floyd Mayweather because he does train, but when he's not training, he's recovering. Yeah. Whereas for the rest of us, we're not recovering. We've got our other stresses, our financial stresses, our family stresses, our workplace stresses, um, our other psychological stresses, our car, our weather, our traffic, whatever else it might be. And I and I bet those are minimal to non-existent in Floyd Mayweather's life. <laughs> um, so he is in a he is training. I'm pretty sure he's got a lot of car payments. So <laughs> <laughs> maybe so. Um, he's either training or recovering, whereas we're not. Those stresses for us are a stress in the same way as exercise. Let's be absolutely clear. They're physical, they're psychological, there's a hormonal response to it. So we're not recovering. Um, second of all, you probably could keep up training five days a week for, a, for a, I don't know, Logan, maybe a couple of weeks. And, and you might get by with it. You probably wouldn't see much in the way of strength increases, but you might not get too unwell. But I guarantee if you tried to do it for any prolonged period, it just isn't going to cut it for you. And you're going to get weaker. You're going to start to get sick. You're going to start to get uh, unhappy. You're going to start to get fed up with your training and so forth. And one of the big problems with this and, and a growing area of research of mine has been what's what I call the minimum effective dose. Um, and that is built on this premise that exercise is medicine. Now, our problem is, if we start with five days a week, two hours a day, and it doesn't work, where do most people, or it stops working, where do most people go? They add, oh, yeah. they add more. Well, I'll do three hours a day, or I'll do a double split routine. I'll train upper body morning, lower body afternoon, and I'll do that four days a week, and so forth. So they add more and add more and add more. And that's not the case. That's not going to work. Um, and that's really going to be a downward spiral. So starting with the minimum effective dose, starting with the fewer exercises, a low volume approach, 
at least gives us somewhere to go. If we want to add more, we can add an extra day. And if we're training once a week and we can go to twice a week, if we're training twice a week, we could go to three times a week. And if that doesn't work, we probably need to go back the other way. Yeah. And, and this is the case where obviously tracking things like writing down what you're actually doing are super important. So you can see that, right? So obviously we can feel those things once we get in tune with, with what our body's doing, but seeing, Hey, Oh, my bench hasn't increased in two weeks after I upped it to three times a week is super beneficial for, um, for when we're trying to see what our progress is actually doing. Yeah. As, yeah. as a nice anecdote around that, um, somebody I was training during my master's, he used to bench, I think he benched about 140 kilos, which if I'm right, is probably close to 300 300, pounds. yeah, something like that. Yeah, for about, um, for about three or four reps. And he would train his upper body, his, his, so his chest and his delts would get, would get hit probably two to three times a week. And for probably the three-week run into Christmas, I was trying to get him to do less and do less. And he came to me one day and he said, we're going to have a, a real problem because the gym is going to close for 10 days over the Christmas <laughs> and New Year break. And I, and I was like, this is great. <laughs> this is tragic. So I said, look, whatever you do, don't kill the push-ups. Just, just enjoy eating, enjoy resting, enjoy recovering. And the first week back after Christmas or after the New Year, well, first thing, he came in the gym like a caged bull. You know, he couldn't have been more, more motivated, <laughs> more enthused. He looked like he'd just drunk a crate of Red Bull. Yeah. And we load up the bar with 140, and he's lying there thinking, I'm going to struggle to get one or two reps. And he smashes 11 reps. Yeah. And, and I'm like – and I've stood there with a smug face saying, I might have been trying to tell you. <laughs> Almost a fourfold increase. That's crazy. Yeah. Right. That's so, awesome. You know, we we need that recovery. We need and, and it might not be it might it might not be that we need to have a frequency so low all the time, but we maybe we need to take time away from training for a week or ten days to allow mm -hmm. complete recovery, especially while there are other stresses going on. So yeah, well, I think, I think it's I think it's just so important to drive that home. I'm not sure what your frequency is, but when when clients ask me, well, how often do you actually train? You know, I'm maybe once every five days, if that. You know, if I could get away with it, if we weren't supposed to train twice a week, it'd probably be less than that. Because I I love my workouts, but man, I just get demolished, and I find that exact thing. You know, obviously, anecdotally for me, when I take a little more time, I have those two things you just mentioned. I get jacked up to be in the gym because it's been a while. And then my, my weights, my uh, just feel of the workout just goes through the roof because I've had that adequate recovery time. Um, but obviously nobody believes you when you say that, at least at first. So um, yeah. well, just to touch on something that you, you mentioned, you talked about kind of the metrics around recording, um, you know, maybe reps or load or time under load and things like that. And I'm, I'm not such a big fan of that it's not that i'm against it by any standard but but i, I tend to think and maybe this, this is easy for me because i'm at a point in my life where the load that i lift is really not going to change that drastically you know my bench press or my back squat or my barbell curl is not going to change by much in the next 12 months so really what i do is i still write it down but i don't look necessarily to improve on it for the next workout i look to hit those markers but i look to have quality in each rep and i think the problem arises if we try to chase reps you know you i hit 10 reps last week this week i've got to hit 12 that if that becomes our, our, our sole focus the quality of the workout diminishes unless we've got a trainer 
the quality of the workout can diminish just to get those reps. And then we up the weight again, and then our form drops off again and so yeah. forth. Yeah. So and can- I, I, I agree completely. And I, you know, Luke tracks his workouts meticulously has for 12, 14 years, maybe longer than that. I can't remember the last time I went into the gym with a workout card, like a workout prescription, but I know what I want to do. I know the general weights and I'm not obsessed with my numbers anymore for that exact same reason. My focus these days is quality. I think it's important though, especially when you're starting out and for some of our new clients that haven't trained like this for as long as the both of us have to see that progress right away. So I I for sure think there is a mental aspect to it. And when you first start off, it's astronomical, man. So it's good to see that stuff. But yeah. yes, as as we both know, really over the long term, it's what I try to accomplish is make it the hardest workout I've ever done every time I work out. And if I can walk out of the gym feeling that way, regardless of what the weights were, I know that I did something right. But again, yeah. we're we're kind of extrapolating out for people that are just starting this journey where it's like, that doesn't even make sense, man. How can you even talk? (laughs) So, but I just kind of wanted to point that out, but that that's all great. So James, I want to start wrapping up here with you because I I'm sensitive to your time, but I think those were, were awesome. And I'd love to get you back on at some point to talk more about this concurrent training uh, idea. I'm actually going to be talking to uh, Jeremy Lowenecki this weekend. So I'm going to miss the first couple minutes of your, uh, your presentation. So I apologize, okay. um, but I'll check out the recording afterwards. Um, well, you can ask Jeremy about concurrent training. He's published some really nice papers on that area. Oh, so really? I would be interested. You know, you should definitely chase him up on that. And uh, yeah. And Jeremy is yeah. an exceptional researcher and just a really great guy as well. So and funny. Yeah. That's he was one of my favorite presenters last year, man. He's I know, just right? Super guy. Bad. Yeah. <laughs> well, you're always you're you're a classic. Um, <laughs> so the last couple of things I just wanted to touch on here, um, you know, again, just to kind of recap quick: talk high reps, low reps, single versus multi set, cardio for weight loss versus weight training for um, adding lean tissue, um, training fast to be fast, and then just the frequency of training. I'd like to get just a kind of update on where you are um, in your current training, just with COVID, everything going on. I know you guys, um, you and Luke and a few other uh, researchers from around the world put together that COVID research paper. I was part of that. Um, what what have you kind of noticed in your own training that's changed? Kind of give us a, an update on that or or things you see just from that research paper maybe? Yeah. So, I mean, wh- one of the key things for me is you know, I felt the, the sting initially of, wow, I can't really train. And then, you know, I've, I've got a pull-up bar. So I dug out the pull-up bar and I was, you know, my workouts were really pull-ups and push-ups and some bodyweight squats and wall sits, which, which, you know, mentally is a bit of a struggle for me. I wanted to do something that I enjoyed a bit more than that, certainly for the lower body. Um, so I, I bought, um, you know, barbell, I bought some weights, I've got some, some decent weight dumbbells. Um, and I've got a bench now and I've got, um, a sissy squat bench. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So I put together what, what now for me is, is probably not much, but is, is really a comprehensive workout. Uh, and I love it. And, and, you know, you talk about frequency there. One of the other thing that depends on frequency is the volume of the workout. So my workouts right now are typically two to three times per week. Um, and that's mostly because they tend to be upper lower splits. So upper body is probably a couple of times a week and then lower is probably once a week. And that's primarily because 
the other cardio that I do for my um, cycling is lower body dominant. So I, I, I tend to give myself kind of 24 hours either side of any lower body exercise, whether that's lifting weights or cycling and so forth. Um, but yeah, I put together what, what for me is, is pretty comprehensive. And I'm enjoying not being in a commercial gym. I'm enjoying being able to train at home whenever I want and so forth. Um, as far as the data from that study, uh, it was really interesting to see what people's perceptions were about their adaptations, you know, from the extreme of, oh, my God, I can't get in a gym. I'm going to lose everything to well, <laughs> just train at home using body weight. And I get that. Um, people that trained more frequently tended to buy equipment or spend more on equipment. Um, so there's some interesting data in all of that. Um, I think the key thing to remember is that, you know, COVID doesn't stop exercise and it doesn't stop hard exercise at all. Um, it might be if it's body weight, then it becomes higher reps. Um, you know, if somebody can only do push-ups instead of um, bench press or chest press, you know, things like that. But, but then maybe it becomes slower reps as well. So it becomes, yeah. you know, a 10, 10 rep duration rather than a four, four or four, a two, four or something. Gotcha. So, but, um, but yeah, uh, you know, I'm, I'm still really enjoying training and, and uh, yeah, it's, it's going well. That's awesome, man. Well, uh, just something I want to ask. I'm trying to figure out kind of the uh, the thing to ask all the guests on here. So I'm going to test this one on you and and see how it goes. So what is the thing you're most excited for in the next three to five years to maybe find out as a researcher, something that you'd hope to prove, something that you'd like to see, maybe a shift in the industry, one big myth that you'd like to see dispelled, something that really excites you that you think you might see in the next three to five years? Yeah, well, I'm going to shamelessly plug the, the projects that I'm working on right now. Perfect, um, go for it. And that's because I'm, I'm I'm in the process of working on a big review, looking at the concept of supervision, because to me, this is one of the most underrated, especially in the UK. It's one of the most underrated kind of variables within resistance training. So. I know that Discover Strength preached this. I know that you all don't do a workout without a trainer training you. So I know you guys know the importance of supervision. Um, and I know a lot of high intensity guys are the same. I train without supervision and it frustrates me because I know that if I had somebody else there, even just as somebody else there, even if they didn't say anything, would change my mindset over is my technique as good as it should be? Is it what I think it should be for them? Am I, you know, that kind of peer response? Um, well, you know, we do virtual training now. Just I do know that you <laughs> And if I can align a schedule, I've been trying, I've been trying to get it in my head when I could do it. Yeah. Um, yeah it's just never panned out, but, mm -hmm. but I started putting together some studies and there's very few studies that have looked at supervision and yet the body of resistance training research of peer reviewed resistance training research has used a supervised protocol. So all the adaptations that we see in resistance training are great if you're being supervised. But really what we should be looking at is the difference between supervised and unsupervised training because if people are training unsupervised and they and they will do then can they really expect the adaptations that we would that we would see from the other peer reviewed studies from this you know maybe there is a difference between single and multiple sets if you're not supervised maybe there is more of a difference between heavy and light loads if you're not supervised you know maybe any difference is extrapolated based on that lack of supervision and and, and in reality maybe supervision is the key marker 
Um, And one of the reasons why this is so important to me is because obviously I ran my own training business and I would train people for a period of time. And I would, you know, one of my goals at the time was to educate people. And I know that that's what Discover Strength do with your your, uh, clients, especially with the seminars that you do. But I would find that you could train somebody for 12 weeks or more, and, and then they would kind of miss a session, and then you'd see them in the gym, and they'd be, they'd be working out on their own. And, and I'd kind of watch the intensity kind of drop off and drop off and watch them start doing more and more exercise, and I'd be, then, they'd, then they'd come back. And I want to be like, you know, you could have just stuck with me the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> just because you know what you're doing doesn't mean that you can do it. Yeah. But it, I mean, there's definitely some ego in that. It's do I really need to pay someone else? And and even as a practitioner, right? Like there's been times where I've just not had the opportunity to train with another trainer and I want to train, um, you know, and I've tried it myself and I, I can probably push myself further than the average person, even on my own, but it's still nowhere close to, to having someone there. That's, that's super interesting. And obviously, you know, as a practitioner yourself, that's, super valuable to, to see that research come to light and for, you know, discover strength in general. I mean, as we continue to grow, uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing that research coming out, man, we'll probably just plaster that all over the walls when you come in. Cause there's so many other technologies that are coming out now where it's not supervision, but it's, it's just another version of a group workout essentially, right? There's no direct accountability and to actually see the evidence show that it's it's not just having somebody show you how to do something. It's having somebody stare at you, make sure that you're being accountable to the repetitions you're doing and see the difference in those things. Yeah. Um, I think that just really puts us in a great position as a company, as a um, just as an industry going forward, that what we're doing is, is extremely valuable um, just from that accountability perspective. So that's super interesting. Um, awesome, James. Well... I just wanted to say congrats on uh, your record 27th resistance exercise conference appearance in a row. Um, For those of you who don't know, this will not be out by the time uh, (laughs) uh, Rec comes out, but it's this Saturday from nine to four. Um, Who are you most excited to, to see speak? Um, You know, it's always a a real pleasure to hear Stu Phillips speak. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So I'm super excited about that. Uh, Benta Clollin Peterson is, is brilliant. And her, her talk on myokines, and I'm really interested to hear how she delivers that to a, a more industry-based conference rather than an academic conference. Mm. And then for me, a bit a huge part of the wreck is to hear the other um, studio owners speak. So the rapid is going to be brilliant. Yeah. You know, I, I always look forward to hearing Patty or Diane or Dwayne or Mike, Blair, Skylar. They've all got you know. Uh, they're, they're the guys in the trenches. So it's yeah. how they've made small changes to what they do or how they focus on certain things with clients, whatever it might be. That's a really, it's a, it's a real pleasure to hear. Yeah. I mean, I'd love to be able to get everyone together. Obviously we can't this year, but I am really excited. Like you said, to, to see Bente, obviously I'm excited. I've heard so much about her cause she was supposed to be back in March. Right. So we've been talking about how brilliant she is and um, just really excited to hear her, her talk, but seeing other people's studios, really getting kind of an in-depth look at what people do. I'm just really excited for that. And it's, you know, it's something that wouldn't come have come about if it wasn't for this, this whole virtual seminar that we have to do. So yeah. kind of a little, little blessing there. Um, anything else? No, I think, I mean, 
yeah, thanks for having me on. Great, yeah. great conversation around you know research and around some of the myths. It's uh, it's always good to talk about that and and, and help to debunk some of those things for uh, for the layperson. So yeah, yeah, for sure, that was great. I really appreciate all your insight. Um, why don't you tell everyone how to contact you if they'd like to reach out and ask you some questions? Yeah, if anybody wants to contact me, feel free. Uh, email is probably the best way. So it's james.fisher at solent.ac.uk. That's Fisher without a C, F-I-S-H-E-R, uh, Solent, S-O-L-E-N-T dot A-C dot U-K. And uh, I'll endeavor to respond to every email. Not that I get that many, but it's always nice to get a few. It's nice to hear about people's experience. It isn't interest in it. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. Awesome, man. All right. Well, it was such a pleasure to get to sit down with you, James, and the first one, man. So thanks, thanks, for, for, uh, thanks for doing it. Hopefully many more. Absolutely. It's an honor. Thank you. All right. Thank you all so much for joining us today. We hope you continue to tune in to catch up on the most important information in the field of evidence-based exercise. If you love the Discover Strength podcast, we'd love to hear from you. Please feel free to reach out to me at logan at discoverstrength.com for comments or guest ideas. Please also like and subscribe on all your favorite podcasting platforms. Help us spread the word of smart, efficient training, and we'll continue to help you look and feel your best in a fraction of the time. Stick around to hear me and another exercise physiologist chat about this week's episode. Thanks so much for joining, and we look forward to seeing you all soon. I'm joined now by uh, exercise physiologist at Discover Strength, David Gerschneidner. Did I say that right, Dave? I feel like uh, I was Gerschneidner. Yeah. Gerschneidner. There's only like three vowels in his whole name. Um, Dave is here just to kind of give us the perspective of another trainer on what he really thought of this James Fisher interview. I just love sitting down with James. He's such a smart guy, really articulate, can talk forever. Um, I just kind of want to get your impressions. Um, biggest takeaways, things like that. So, so what do you think of the the interview, Dave? Yeah, just to start off, I learned a lot of background information about James that I never heard before. Right, I had no idea that he trained anybody ever. I thought he just wasn't, you know, an exercise researcher. So, uh, some of that background was interesting for me. Although I'm not sure uh, how much any of our clients would actually care about that stuff, but I mean, maybe it's helpful. So. Uh, and then as far as the actual content, when we got down to the five different myths, it is interesting to think about how pervasive these still are and how when you bring them up to him, it's almost like it's almost hard for him to believe that people are still talking about these things that have been around for the last 30 years as, uh, as myths. So I, uh, I really enjoyed the, the subject matter overall. Let me ask, what do you see on a regular basis that's probably the most pervasive of those that we kind of touched on? Is there one in particular that you feel like clients that come to you on a regular basis are saying, why aren't we doing more sets? Or how do I lose fat? Like, what is the thing that kind of jumps out to you the most? Yeah, I think without a doubt, when it comes to our clients, people are talking the most about cardio for weight loss. Like it's, it's incredible how much people will talk to you about, all right, this is awesome. I'm really progressing. How much more cardio should I do? Or when do I start to incorporate more cardio? And yeah. I always just stop the person and say, 
why, like, why do you want to do that? What is your objective that you're actually trying to achieve with this? Because most people are so off base and 95% of the time it is, I want to lose fat, right? Yeah. Say anything about cardiovascular disease. So give us kind of the David Gershneidner uh, go-to response when somebody comes to you and says, Dave, I love my workouts. Uh, It's going great. I feel significantly stronger, but the gut's not changing. And I really want to do something for weight loss. Um, I'm thinking about getting a Peloton or I'm thinking about starting to run. What's your suggestion? Yeah, I think James nailed it on the head when he talked in your, uh, your podcast with him is the amount of calories that you're actually going to be burning from a bout of cardio, the additional number of calories that you're burning, because he mentioned it doesn't have an effect on your rest of metabolic rate following that actual workout is going to end up being negligible, especially when you compare it to just having an effective diet. And there's a million ways to to skin that cat, right? But um, I thought he did a good job of saying the actual calorie burn from that mode of exercise is not going to make a huge difference unless you're doing an insanely high volume. So I think it's important for people to understand that they're probably not burning as many calories as they think they are in a bout of cardio. It's not having an effect on their uh, resting metabolic rate after that bout of cardio. Um, and oftentimes it increases their hunger afterward as well. So it's, uh, it's not ideal for weight loss in a number of ways. Yeah. So I guess just in kind of summation here, what would you say is the biggest takeaway you had from this episode, things that maybe you're going to implement with clients going forward, things that you're going to tell friends, uh, coworkers, colleagues um, that you think was really beneficial that you'd like to kind of implement in your own training or, or helping other people. One thing that I think is was helpful for me to hear from James as well uh, was talking about how you actually play with frequency of training. So if somebody's seeing really good results with once a week and they want to try to get better results, they can try twice a week. If they see even better results, they might even try three times in a week. And for most people, that's like the really upper end of uh, a high responder's ability to see great results to be three times a week. And then if they start to taper off or if they go from two to three and actually get worse, you know, all right, that was not the right frequency. So he kind of, I guess, confirmed a suspicion or a thought was, the way to understand if somebody should be once a week or twice a week or three times a week is to experiment with it essentially and see how they're, see how they progress. Now that's the part of this whole podcast where I just, I disagree with him and I disagree with James Steele where they talk about the, the lack of need for tracking progress, uh, let alone the fact that I think it increases the overall intensity of the workout, knowing what you did last time it becomes pretty difficult to tell if somebody's starting to overtrain if you don't start to track those things. Otherwise, you're just strictly, you're strictly basing it off of that person's um, feeling, right? They might say, I feel like I'm a little bit more exhausted than I have been or whatever the case may be. And that's valid, but it'd be nice to have some data or some numbers to back that up in my opinion. So I think he understates the importance of tracking your workouts and tracking your progression. That's something I maybe disagreed with, but. Yeah, that's great. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time for this today, Dave. I I think you made some great points and I think it's a lot of useful uh, feedback for for our clients and listeners to kind of incorporate. Um, I I really hope everybody enjoyed this episode. We look forward to getting Dave back to, to recap some other episodes in the future. And thank you again so much, everyone, for joining us on the Discover Strength podcast. We look forward to seeing you again soon.